the ending of our second full day and night uh, together. Perhaps it's been uh, quite a ride. Sometimes it seems like we're on a roller coaster. Like that cart and those tracks that stretch out, it can, so many experiences can seem so real. The aspiration, the enthusiasm, the I'm on the path walked by the awakened ones of old, the men, the women over the ages, have the energy to meet any obstacle. And the sense of uh, inner screaming that we don't feel like how we're going to make it to the next moment. Can't bear another step or another breath or tender moments. Dull alphabet soup, pea soup. And we're in the middle of it at the moment. Like a fly bouncing off the wall, ramming into glass that he can't see, <coughs> flying to another window, hitting it. <coughs> and yet you're still here. We're still here. There's something very challenging, yet liberating, ancient wisdom in consciously surrendering to a form. It's the secret of, of religious practice as it was wisely uh, envisioned by the saints and sages of old. Religere means a binding, to bind back, bind oneself to a silence, for example, to a sitting period, to a walking period. And that, in that conscious surrendering to limitation, the opportunity to, to recognize the different states that come up, which could just sweep us away. But through that conscious staying with, one has the chance to see the restlessness well up and patiently as we breathe with it, Notice it can subside in moments, seeming so real, so 
Was I restless? We could have followed its first impulse, been hijacked by it. Yet the conscious use of a structure, of a form, can help us get that impulse in perspective. The word yoga meant the same thing, a yoking, conscious surrendering to a limitation. Ultimately, for the sake of helping free us from all limitation. Even uh, theoretically, as I'm told, the temple principle was like that, the sacred ground, the sacred boundary, a place like this, dedicated to liberation, to looking into the true nature of things and freeing oneself from endless, self-perpetuating suffering the sacred ground that one can consciously step into. Maybe with all the inspiration in the world, we we come going on retreat, stepping into the sacred ground, the dawn, everything's fresh. Enthused. And then most of us know the, the different swirl of feelings that can come. Or even the paving beast that that was grunting, growling, that make us think, sacred ground? And yet something in us that can stay One can stay, contemplate. The word contemplate has within it that temple. A really important part of liberation from confusion involves a willingness to stay with. We take our first assumptions about things, I'm out of here with every impulse. It seems like free, be free. I'm spontaneous, I'm free. Yes, but we can spontaneously do things we regret for a long time. I used to be a prison chaplain when I was a monk and I would go and visit with people just like you and me, but who had emotions arise that just seemed, yes, let's go with it. young man who, who just was uh, 13, 14, got angry and just, just picked up a stick and hit his friend. But hit his friend so hard it killed his friend. He was still locked up, reflecting. Or even now in this country we've been living in from, for... 20 years, uh, South Africa, there's a country's glued to this, this trial. And a lot of others in the world are, are following it. A great uh, hero, uh, Oscar Pistorius, who'd overcome so many uh, obstacles and to, to, to 
through striving, through patience to, to, to compete, became a, became a great track star. But through powerful feelings that arose, and who knows what exactly arose, but powerful feelings of whether they were anger or whether it was fear, who knows? But suddenly, pa 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 pa, and his beloved is is dead. There was an ancient wisdom that had been forgotten. The modern notion of religion is, oh, what do you believe? It's just like some belief system. And, and Buddhists don't fit so easily into these categories. But if one goes into the great saints and sages that founded those, uh, those, those religions, this principle of training, consciously limiting, it's the, it's the truth in the cross too. Except here we are willingly, it's a heavy image, but crucified, willingly staying with what isn't easy to stay with, not just for the sake of making points, torturing ourselves, but for the sake of deepening our capacity to be with how it is. For the sake of getting in perspective this tendency of being hijacked by ghosts, Tendencies that sweep us into aversion. Where we think to solve the problem, we just have to obliterate that. (laughs) Or that sweep us into thinking we've got to have something. Sweep us into flight, fight, confusion. The wise ones have all realized that something that can help us stay with stay with, then we little by little can then be liberated from wrong understandings. So, I'm very heartened, we're very heartened with the quality of effort, quality of uh, patience, quality of staying with, which on one level can, you know, we can experience, God, what am I accomplishing just sitting here? being restless, being dull, being collapsed, or being peaceful when the world's burning. But I just in, in encourage us not to be careful about not undervaluing. The Buddha, uh, you know, when was asked to simplify his teaching, what's it really about? When he really got it simplified, he would say, well, it's about suffering and the ending of suffering. When that suffering comes, the recognition of suffering comes from avidya, when there is not seeing clearly. Avidya means not seeing, means ignoring, being confused by is the ground that keeps perpetuating stress, suffering, conflict, confusion. 
that when there's clear seeing, understanding, when there's freed up, from this root tendency to take something to be me, to this claiming, this deep tendency to claim, to own. There's nothing evil about that. Natural. Yet he realized when he had deepened his capacity to be present, composed just as we're practicing, refreshed, then turning that mind of clarity, noticing all these experiences, sights and sounds and feelings and thoughts, perceptions and impulses that we take to be me and mine. When he recognized with his wisdom that they actually are shifting and changing, Just as we have begun to see by being willing to stay with this whole cascade of different emotions. From the dawn, to the heat, to the disturbance, to the delicious quiet that we could wish we could keep forever, to losing it, looking again, The Buddha recognized that when we take some things, some form, some impression, some mood, some circumstance to be me, mine, when there is that assumption, that leaning on that condition, that it leads to suffering, distress, when that condition inevitably changes. I'm just encouraging us to stay with, stay with this process of cultivating primary relationship. It might seem like we're running away from the world, but we're giving ourselves the opportunity to truly connect with the elements of, of the world. Might be nice to wish, may all beings be at peace, may the lion lie down with the lamb. That's a lovely thought, but have we really cultivated relationship? And we're learning through this cultivation of awareness and steadiness to relate to form, to this body, practicing being with, sustaining presence, sitting, walking, little by little, maybe getting the sense for, for gathering back the elements of our being into this moment.
when I, I've been, uh, this practice of contemplation has been at the center of my life for the last uh, 38 years. And um, when I went off to, to explore this practice, my, my parents were horrified. Because I, in a sense, had, uh, in, in the little world of Chattanooga, Tennessee, I had uh, made it as far as my parents were concerned. You might not realize it, but you are looking at five-time Mid-South champion in wrestling. <laughs> what league is that? I used to have muscles. I could walk on my hands for 100 yards. could do 500 push-ups a day. I was running and climbing ropes. And I had uh, been valedictorian of my high school, gone off to Princeton, won a Rhodes Scholarship, and was at Oxford. And, and so on paper and in the scrapbooks, and my mom and dad were the biggest cheerleaders. Mom took pictures of everything. And so we, when I opened that, you know, that's happiness because it's success. And I so wanted to be successful. There's that picture of my hand being raised up. I'd won the tournament. Yet even within minutes of winning that national tournament in Lehigh, Pennsylvania, where we had flown up from Tennessee. Within minutes, I was worrying, afraid. Who, who do I have to wrestle next year to defend the championship? So obsessed, driven, winning, and wanting to be successful. So afraid of, of losing, so tyrannized by a comparing mind that even though when I was, was in uh, Oxford and won this scholarship and was heading on to medical school and was doing a thesis, starting to feel exhausted with that and sensing that somehow I, I was overlooking something, sensing I was overlooking this heart, something inside. So when I heard about a great master in Thailand and I heard about the, that there were a few Westerners with him and I heard that you were learning how to be simple and even just the word enlightenment, of course I had no idea what he really meant, but the word just telling me, reminding me that we all have within us this potentiality we all would not be here if in some sense we did not trust that it's possible to grow beyond our fear, to see through our pettiness, to be freed from our afflictions, 
we didn't have some sort of trust in that process, I don't think we would, would do this. But there's a, somehow at the core of that is a, is a trust. And this awakening process. So when I heard of great master, I had to go. I had met someone who was confident and strong, a doctor who lived in Thailand. He was a scientist. He was doing research. He had trekked across wilderness. He had dined with the king and queen of Thailand. He was uh, confident. This man was confident. A bit intimidating how confident this man was, but... But one of his hobbies was just uh, part of his research was to do studies on the effect meditation had on the personality. So he would visit the different monasteries and and do little personality tests. And he was noticing the effect of meditation over time on beings. And in the process of him talking, he then said, oh yeah, but there's one special monastery. And this confident man, when he mentioned Ajahn Chah, I'd never seen that before, that quality of, you don't tend to meet that on the wrestling mat, the quality of reverence, deep respect, and honoring and, and, and he said, and, and, and that man is enlightened. But just the way that he said it, it was as if this big gong had gone off. You see in the old movies sometimes, uh, someone in the, or- in the Orient, the East, somewhere hits a gong and it goes, Whoa, and that kind of went off like that. And I just thought, well, I'd like to, meet a really wise person. Because I knew one thing, I might have trophies, might be a Mid-South champion, I might be a Rhodes Scholar, but I knew one thing, I was not free. I was tormented by thinking out of control, so much self-criticism, fly off the handle. So I, I, I went off. To, to Thailand, left, left him a road scholarship. And my parents, poor parents. And this was back in the 70s when there was all the worry about the cults. <coughs> Wasn't that long after that that, you know, all those people in Jonestown committed suicide. And, and plus that was all the wars and In the seventies, there was there was uh, Vietnam, and then there was all the chaos in in Cambodia, in uh, Laos, and then there was the the uh, rumors about the it wasn't really known yet the killing fields of uh, Cambodia, and there they their son was sitting near the Laotian and Cambodian border, in a monastery. And as I say, 
Buddhist monks were thin on the ground in Chattanooga, Tennessee at that time. <laughs> they were. Uh, for my... But uh, my parents being concerned and loving flew to Thailand. And I tell you what, for mom to fly to Thailand to a jungle in northeast Thailand and to stay there is, was something, because that was not their idea of a holiday. <laughs> but they met, uh, they met Ajahn Chah. And I was really, over the years, have been really course impressed by Ajahn Chah's power. When he would pause to sit, you could just feel the, the kind of magnetic field change. He's sitting like a mountain. But what really has stayed with me over the years is his compassion. His awareness of how challenging this practice is. And even though I was in such a hurry to get done after I heard about this enlightenment thing and all you have to do is get a little bit peaceful and then you see through the nature of things and boom, it all explodes up. And then you get, you know, and and if they can work hard, I can work harder, I tell you what. And I'll be able to keep going and and be the best and then maybe everybody will get enlightened. His compassion. And there my parents were, northeast Thailand sitting with Ajahn Chah. And he had time for them. And I remember uh, my, my father being quite concerned. He, he didn't have the words quite right. I mean, it's Ajahn Chah, but he would call him the Agan Chah. Or he did, but he was, you know, being respectful. And... Um, he said, isn't it dangerous here? Aren't you worried about the communist guerrillas? And the, you know, he was really concerned for our welfare. Because we were near the border. There was trouble. And of course he was you know, worried about his son, but he, he first went to that, that tangible situation. And Ajahn Chah was patient and kind. Said, "Yes, yes, you know that is a that is a danger. There are the there are all sorts of possibilities of violence, things beyond our control." But he said, "What's more dangerous are those terrorists, those bandits." those gorillas in the heart. He said, they can rob you. Rob you of any well-being. They can call, can wreak havoc with your life, your family, your community, your world. And then by answering that question, he went on to talk about 
and helping open up for my family the work that we were doing in that monastery, the work that we're doing here, as we, in simple ways, learn how to be here, to enjoy simple things, and then honestly to recognize what obstructs us. And that's the territory we're in now. As we stay here to, to recognize what obstructs us, what, what the Buddha called the hindrances, or what sometimes we're called the fires, or the floods, or sometimes these, these uh, can have uh, different names, but what can sweep us away? can harm us and harm others. So as we are steadying ourselves in this, in this practice and learning how to say not now and to return and to be patient and steady ourselves, developing some capacity, some steadiness, what we could call calming. As that's deepened, as one gets more skillful over the years, the decades, it can really be a wonderful refreshment, a brightening, a healing. But even then, those states are states. They change. They're skillful, it's helpful. Some of us have more the conditioning where where that's more easy to access. But even if one doesn't have much capacity for for steadiness, even just a little bit of learning how to be with a step. I mean, Ajahn Chah would encourage us when when some of us would get too obsessed with how much samadhi we were getting. And I I was one, once I started to get a little bit of calm and wanted more, I was one to snap onto that feeling and just go deeper, 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 which is all skillful to a certain point. But I was also missing the point. And Ajahn Chah would remind us, hey, you know, even if you have enough samadhi to read a book, you can still be liberated. Obviously, he encouraged us to keep deepening our capacity. But sometimes we can get so obsessed with how calm we're getting that we, and then get distressed that we don't have enough, we can forget that we also can use whatever composure we have right now and say, is this hurting? What's happening now? Can we notice that aversion for this state or wanting to be in a different state? These were these bandits, these thieves, these terrorists, these currents that uh, Ajahn Chah was telling my mother and father and telling his students all the time, this is important. And when one doesn't give attention to this, when one doesn't give attention, that's what the, the Buddha would call them, for example, the hindrances, the nawaranas. He would say when we when we just assume they're me and we're entangled in them, he said it's like uh, 
borrowing money and being in debt. We're bound in a sense. Or it's like being sick. We, we can't enjoy eating. Don't have the energy to move. We're, we're in pain. These, these were some images the Buddha gave us. Or he said it's like a being in prison, literally locked up. Where we're uh, when we think of Mr. Mandela in that tiny prison cell for 27 years. Difficult state. Or the image, uh, uh, another image, the simile the Buddha gave for, for when we don't really contemplate these energies, he says it's like being in servitude or in bondage or in slavery where we uh, have to follow someone else's orders. It's a painful situation. If we can imagine. Or the last simile the Buddha gave is where it's like we have wealth and we're on a journey through a desert where we're vulnerable to bandits, we're not safe and we're afraid. That's similar to Ajahn Chah comparing, comparing these energies to, to, uh, to terrorists. But not to encourage us to think, oh gosh, well then I'm in big trouble, you know. But Ajahn Chah said, no, but if you contemplate these energies, then, then they become teachers, they become our sharpening stones. So with whatever steadiness we have, we start getting pulled by things. We can turn. This is called the insight dimension of practice. It has within it the steadying power of being present. So investigation and insight is not far from calming. To do good calming practice takes wise reflection. It has within it the wisdom faculty too. The calming and the investigative dimensions of, uh, of meditative practice, there's two different words, but, but actually they, they work together. They're, they come from this one, one mind. So I'm, I'm encouraging as we, we go into this retreat uh, deeper these next days too, if there are some of these currents like desire, wanting something that's pulling us, Someone was mentioning in the um, questions today about, you know, this this obsession with food. I could really relate to that. Time in the monastery, well, all I could think of is when that meal was coming and whether there would be the sweets in the banana leaves or the pumpkin curries. (laughs) And and, uh, just obsessed or obsessed when I was uh, in the monastery, uh, you know, when you're a monk, you have no money, and you're getting up at 3 or 3.30 in the morning and practicing celibacy, you know, for years just uh, filled with, with, with lust and would be doing the water hauling to, to draw the waters out of the well for our washing and uh, for, for, for what we needed for our drinking. 
And I remember once one of the villagers, a, a young Laotian girl, who was being very respectful, but she called from a distance, Lalabal, which means, are, you, are y'all finished yet? So that she could come. Just her image and her voice. This beautiful person. For, for months. <laughs> you know, gosh, some monk I am, just one big... <laughs> You know, just uh, all I can think about is eating and lust. <laughs> and yet, uh, and Ajahn Chah would, uh, you know, rather, uh, you know, whereas some people in Thailand would be impressed if you had visions of uh, something special, but uh, Ajahn Chah was interested if you could, he said, Hintuk my, can you see suffering? And when the desires, if it just encourages to that even moments, periods of time of learning to be with, be still with. I didn't go chase down the Laotian girl. I contemplated. Contemplated the fire, contemplating the welling up, noticing how desire is always pointing out, questioning from time to time, who, who's this happening to? Questioning if it's changing and shifting. Getting that into perspective. Ajahn Chah said, when you're doing that, then there are moments. Moments when, rather than being me, I have to have moments when you can say, ah, there's desire. It's a part of nature. It's a tendency, a pattern. And maybe even moments of noticing, wow, in this moment there isn't desire. It's very important to notice a moment even if it comes up with incredible ferocity later, a moment when you're not wanting to be somewhere else. He said, in that moment, it's like being out of prison, free from debt. It's like being well. It's like being freed from bondage or slavery. Home safe. And that moments of even when the pattern is there, the I know you, that a moment of being with desire and staying with it, we're accessing, we're deepening what's called dispassion, the opposite of that, to be with desire and to listen to it. We're bowing in the moment in the morning to namo, I return to that compassionate one that listens to the sounds of the world. More and more we're learning, yes, to recognize the activity of the mind, what moves through the heart, but that's changing all the time. Our refuge, where stability will be. Because of the sounds, the dimensions, experiences of dawn and dusk, Confident and doubting, feeling good, feeling awful, ever-changing. But through this practice, this willingness to return, we're getting the feeling for the home ground aversion, mirror image of desire. 
It's another kind of wanting, wanting something not to be there. And again, yes, if we're not really contemplating, that can rob us. Be much, according to Ajahn Chah at least, we can contemplate this much more damaging to our life than any outer thief or terrorist. If we're not really contemplate aversion, then wherever we go, we can ruin it. <sighs> Sour this, that's not quite right. <sighs> Can't believe them. Or then we turn it on ourselves. <sighs> so to have this notion of this is a teacher, to use whatever, if these energies come, also to, to, to notice that desire will always take us to the next thing and not ever allow us to go deeply here. Aversion is similar. It's telling us it's wrong. That there's always something else to get rid of. Both of these energies can rob us of ever really mining the depths of this moment. Meditators also have to, as one gets a little bit of a taste for peace, one can sometimes have to be a little careful of this uh, aversion. We can really, I, I, I was totally attached to smooth, calm states. And for some years, I had a war on ticking clocks in the monastery. We'd have our long winter retreats, which is heaven. I love meditation. And, you know, I've got a few months where we close the monastery, and all we do is just meditate morning to evening for three months. It's wonderful. But the abbot, up there right in the front of the room, had this thing that was going clang. Every, every tick must have been heard on the moon. <laughs> What's wrong with him? Is he deaf? I was getting heart failure. I mean, I had all sorts of methods of putting slipping soft things under the clock to try to... Changing the clocks feeling guilty about changing the clocks. Or as I can, you know, imagine Ajahn Chah, or, or even t- today if anybody was, or yesterday, having trouble with the, the, uh, the paving beast, I can imagine Ajahn Chah going, nah, smiling. He would say, did that disturb you? Or did you go out and disturb that sound? <laughs> and uh, you know the one of the principles of how samadhi can deepen which it took me a long time to get close to but the Buddha said people can't really deeply enter states of calm if they don't know how to withstand sights sounds smells tastes, impressions, bodily impressions. 
encouraging us to little by little deepen our capacity. Yes, it's helpful and it's useful to have these quiet circumstances, but noticing if, if, if coming in, that you know, we just get so averse and, and then just uh, in that aversion, then our peace becomes very fragile. So encouraging us to learn to listen to the aversion, to know it. And in a moment of being with aversion, guess what? We deepen our capacity to be kind, to hold that spikiness, that hold that. All these states, the dullnesses, have something to teach us. The restless anxiety, the worry, are blessed. The state is blessed by noticing it, and also the heart that is with, say, anxiety and worry. That which knows worry is not worried. We're so focused on the form. Imagine it's me. But in our contemplation, as we're now allowing our practice to open to seeing the nature of things, we'll notice these states change. They well up and subside. The states come and go. And the heart remains. So in encouraging us with these different states, desire and aversion, heaviness, restlessness and worry, and doubting, very important one. This, oh, I t- might work for some people, but you know, really, let's face it, I just don't think it's working for me. And I'm not really, and you know, bless his heart, that kitty star, I mean, you know, he's, <laughs> but he ain't the Buddha. And, you know, I, I was sensing when I was looking at that website that there's, you know, that teacher looks, maybe it's true, but that doubt, even that doubt, and this was one of Ajahn Chah's biggest ones. You know, we have interviews here. And, and sometimes if you ask Ajahn Chah for an interview, Ajahn, I mean, he would talk to you. But sometimes he would say, interviews? Say, interview yourself! Huh? And he so encouraged us to know the doubts rather than to obsessively get an answer because that's what doubt's looking for, an answer. I, I, I wonder if, um, you know, the, the nostrils, Ajahn Chah did the nostrils, but, uh, you know, I've heard that uh, that particular teacher said if you do this, you might fall into bliss, get stuck there. Then you'd <laughs> I don't know anyone who's been stuck in bliss, but anyway, <laughs> you might get stuck there. And then, you know, some say here because, you know, we get more grounded and rooted. But, you know, you start going down there. <laughs> that could be trouble. And you do, you do have that lust problem, Kitty Sorrow. You, you start going down. And, and, you know, others say that the head chakra is where it really opens up. <laughs> and, uh, but you do think too much. You know, oh, God. 
And, you know, I mean, even, even if the Lord Buddha himself appeared, Kitty Sorrow, <laughs> I can see you're sincere. You may observe the breath at the nostrils and it will do you no harm. <sighs> Praise Buddha. Thank you. Thank you. And then, uh, you know, you thought that was the Buddha? Come on, man, you didn't get taken in by that. There's always another doubt. And at some point, this is a wonderful circumstance if the mind gets into obsessive thinking, wondering, tangled in looking for an answer, to be able to, ah, doubt. To know the doubt. That which knows the doubt It's not doubt. There can be all sorts of doubt going on. What are you going to just ask us where we're going to be living next year? You you can ask the Nishana all sorts of things. We are full of doubt. As we're at a a point now of our life, a lot of uncertainties. I'm nursing my dear dad who's 97 right at the edge and we're trying to keep something in Africa going and we're noticing our energy to cope with the responsibilities that are hard to keep up with. There are all sorts of things we don't have answers for. And sometimes there is doubt. But knowing the doubt, one's abiding place can be the knowing. Okay, you don't have an answer yet, but there's knowing it. And sometimes, just like bread hasn't cooked yet. I want it now. It's not done, Tindisura tells me. No, 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 it's not done. Knowing the Tao. Then there's times when one learns to hang out with recognized doubt. Getting perspective on the cognitive faculty, hugely important in the Buddha Dhamma, in the teachings of the Buddha. It's an important gateway to touching Nibbana, what's called entering the stream. To be able to just uh, get this passion about the thoughts. Okay, we don't know what to do. Knowing the doubt. We can rest in the knowing. The thoughts change. Then there's a time where, oh, I'll, t- I'll try this. I'll do that. So continuing with our training of being here. But don't undervalue the power and the significance of of being with what seems so ordinary and unspectacular. We're illuminating these, what Ajahn Chah was pointing to my parents, these bandits, these terrorists, these, these thieves which will rob us and rob the world of true principle, of well-being, have the opportunity to get to know them, to know their movement, to deepen our refuge in the knowing, to have moments when we realize it's just a pattern. We're not tangled. Have moments of, ah, freedom from that. 
And just to remember that the, when the Buddha woke up and realized that at the heart of every condition, whatever we're feeling right now, its essence is peaceful. Our true nature is peaceful. And in moments when we realize it is the nature of sound and sensation and thought to move, like lightning flashes in the sky, if we try to catch them and freeze them, that's called a recipe for real stress, because you won't succeed. But in moments of realizing lightning is ungraspable, we can be in awe of it and notice it. All of the changing sounds, sensations, moods. But in letting be, letting what comes go, letting things shift and change, we can touch into that ever-present ground of presence, knowingness, listening. Whatever word we give, name we give, is just another flash. This is our destiny. The Buddha said we will wake up because it's our nature. So encouraging us all to be very patient and trust that uh, this is important for our well-being, for our family's well-being, for the world's well-being. May our work today bless our parents, wherever they are, here or in some other form. Everything we, we do will be shared. But we can consciously acknowledge that, like a pebble dropping into a pool, sending ripples. With the ease, the ease of each out breath when we relax, may we consciously share the goodness of our lives with our parents, loved ones, each other, this earth, all our fellow beings, good and bad. May all beings share in the goodness of our practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.